ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to A Hoop's Journey. We have an iconic uh, person and face um, in the game of basketball in our province joining us. A guy who I'm super thrilled to sit down and get to know more about and a name very familiar with many people out there in the in the sports world in Canada and especially in British Columbia. Uh, we have no other than Mr. John McKeechee with us today. How are you, sir? That's uh, <laughs> very good, Aaron. Thanks very much. And uh, we might have to redefine the word iconic by the time this is over. <laughs> <laughs> Well, don't worry. Corbin's a good editor, so we can make you look. Uh, we can make you look great. How's things? You know, how's life treating you? And um, you know, doing some research on you and where you're at in your life right now. We have a connection through STM, which is funny. So, how are you doing? And how are you managing to just uh, you know get through everything that's happening around us these days? Yeah, well, I guess I'm as going as crazy as the next as the next person. It's been a month ago today that I had my vaccine, so I'm in the old fart category. And uh, my conditioning has certainly been waning, but I've I have a daughter that's a nurse, and so between her and her, another daughter who's a lawyer, another one who's another UBC grad, they, they wouldn't let me go to the gym until three weeks three weeks after the shot. So I've only been back in the gym about the last week or ten days, and I can tell you, uh, conditioning's an issue. But uh, on the bright side, I've lost ten pounds this past week, so <laughs> we'll see go. what happens. But I'm missing uh, a regular year or winter for me would be playing old-timers hockey twice a week and basketball once a week with a, mm -hmm. since it's basketball uh, focused here, the basketball group I play with, uh, I think is around the 53rd or 54th year of existence. It started with a bunch of UBC alumni in the late 60s. Wow. I joined them in the early 80s, so I won't even have with them like 30 some odd years, but uh we're called the Tuesday nights, <laughs> and uh, the fast breaks are now meanders. But uh, anyway, there's sort of a, a little bit of a crooked path to uh, how things are going. I, I still, I still work, uh, but I do it from home, and I've actually enjoyed working from home, except for the missing of you know being around people and mm -hmm. going downtown and things like that. But uh, I do it because I enjoy it, and um, I'll continue doing so until they say otherwise. Did you find the process of doing things online fairly smooth based on kind of what you've done your whole life in terms of a little bit of technology or was it was it a bit of a rough patch to just adjust and get used to constant Zoom meetings and how all that worked for you? It's sort of ironic. My last year at UVic, I was taking a computer programming course and you're probably talking to the most computer illiterate guest you've ever had on your shows or whatever. Oh, <laughs> not, not even close. close. Not <laughs> I do have an iPhone. I do have an iPad. But I, and I do have a computer which we're, we're doing this interview on. So um, I can almost walk and chew gum. And uh, <laughs> thanks to some of the support staff at my company, which, by the way, is called ZLC Financial. You can find us at ZLC.net. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the way, I'm not licensed. I'm just a, a rainmaker, for lack of a better term. <laughs> Uh, but with the help of the support staff, uh, Sheena and, and Cindy and a few others, uh, they managed to set me up with this laptop. And uh, I did a year ago, well, maybe a little more than a year ago, I didn't know the term Zoom. And now, you know, we're on a weekly, you know, not daily so much. But uh, our Tuesday night group, as a matter of fact, that's how we meet. Oh, no via, way. Via Zoom every Tuesday night. Your your entry into the Zoom and Clean Fleet was uh, flawless compared to, and we will not name names, but there have been some ugly moments trying to get people to uh, do a podcast online. So, And mm -hmm. some can't even get to the Zoom part. So give yourself some props for that. Yeah, not to worry. Yeah. You're, you're, you're <laughs> not the bottom of the list. I'll tell you that. 
<laughs> You'll find a list where I'm in the bottom at some point. <laughs> Well, let's get right into it. Tell us about your life as a young guy um, growing up on the island. You know, I know people will know your name, but maybe not a lot of people know your story. And tell us about how sport started to be a part of who you were. You know, you're big, a big guy. So were you a big guy your whole life? And, and how especially basketball started to become a little bit of um, a passion for you? Born and raised in Victoria, uh, in the Fairfield area of Victoria. And uh, my dad was working marketing for, for Chevron for Standard Oil. And um, we, he bought a house after the war in 1947. Well, we would have moved in in 19, January of 1948 up in the Quadrant area up near Mayfair Shopping Center in January of 1948. So it was a, a lot of young families around, a lot of young kids and so on and so forth. So it was uh, a typical bikes parked outside kids' houses. You walk up the street, yell, is Jimmy home or whatever, we'd all meet and play in various fields around the Topaz Park area of Victoria, for those who know that, and uh, the area adjacent to it, uh, we used to call it, we used to well, meet you at the rocks. There was a huge, big rock outcropping. And, and meanwhile, all of this was a block and a half away from Quadra Elementary School, where we went to school. And um, from there on to S.J. Willis Junior High School, which I think was the first junior high school, certainly on Vancouver Island, maybe B.C., but uh, it was an old jail back in the 30s and 40s or something or other at one point, but uh, I think it's now a school board office. From there to Victoria High School and from there to the University of Victoria. But backtracking to when I was a kid, um, two things happened in 1953 when I was nine years old. Now, I was born in December, so during this time I was uh, spring and summer of in fall of 1953, I was, for the most part, I was nine years old, even though my 10th birthday would be in December. And that's the year Little League Baseball started on Vancouver Island in Victoria. Oh. So I played four years of baseball, and uh, I'm not a big stats nut, but who else remembers their Little League batting average for one? They, so I hit 111 when I was nine. I hit 329 when I was 10. I hit 391 when I was 11. And I hit 540 and won the batting title when I was 12. Oof. And all that time, I only hit one home run. Okay. The bigger claim to fame was my teammate that my dad identified as our coach was a smooth left-hander by the name of George Hemming, who became the first kid who was a product of Little League Baseball to sign pro when the Yankees signed him in about 1962 or so. And uh, he went down to Fort Lauderdale. Well, he went down to Johnson City, Tennessee, and a bunch of other places. But anyway, that was baseball. Were you up before him? Is that why the average was so good or what? You got to see all the good pitches? Well, <laughs> No, he was a he was a smooth left-hander. Like he was smooth from nine years old mm. on up. At any rate, oh by the way, the ten-year-old year, the big increase was this year. I, I figured out my eyesight was an issue, and that's when I started to wear glasses. <laughs> and and the and the foreshadowing came when the optometrist told me your eyes will stop getting worse when you stop growing. And um, in junior high school, grade seven, eight, and nine, um, I can remember being. 5-2 at the beginning of grade 7, 5-3 five, uh, five, at the beginning of grade 8, and 5-4 at the beginning of grade mm. 9. And then when I went to Vikai in the spring of my grade tenure, I was 5-10 and 3 quarters for the junior totems high school pitchers, so I drew 6 and 3 quarter inches from September of grade 9 till May of grade 10. Mm. 
Anyway, I'm going all over the place here. Back to 1953, so never mind the great summer of 53, the the fall of 53, there were a bunch of guys from the uh, 1930s, including my dad, uh, who played for a team called the Dominoes and also the Blue Ribbons. And they were, I think, Canadian champions. And uh, one of one of whom was Porky Andrews, who uh, went to uh, Oregon, 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 Oregon. I think you know, he's a duck, or University of Oregon Ducks. So at any rate, there was, and there was other guys in Victoria, Busher Jackson, and a fellow by the name of Harold Turner, who had eyesight issues. But the whole point of all that it was is these guys that started a thing called in the basement of a church called First United Church in Victoria, First United Boys Club. And in, the, in September of 1953, I remember going. And we go into this basement of this church, and you walk down into a pit. WWF would have loved this. And, you, and, and there were the out of bounds was maybe six inches wide, all the way around the side, of the, and, the, and the wall was about four, about well, maybe three to four feet high. It was called Biddy Basketball, B-I-D-D-Y, uh, which meant there were eight foot hoops. And I don't think the ceiling was much more than fifteen or twenty mm-hmm. feet. So I never did have what I called any arch on my shot, but it was art. So <laughs> at any rate, that was the genesis of my basketball career. And I think, I'm not sure it was that year or the next year, I might have met your uncle Bruce, who was yeah. a, a very good basketball player. And um, mm-hmm. the following year, the church had built what they call a fellowship hall for, the, uh, for two reasons. First of all, for a bigger Sunday school. And secondly, for, um, uh, for the basketball program. The good news is they put in a, a, a beautiful big linoleum floor the bad news is the custodian would wax it every once in a while. So, <laughs> so, so the program, uh, and just so you understand, it was a Protestant church, but they had a rule that you could come and play at that in with this program, no matter what denomination you were. The only stipulation was you went to your Sunday school or church of your choice uh, weekly, and that was your own, that was your only eligibility requirement. So uh, one of my teammates, I didn't even know he was Jewish until uh, about, I don't know, 10 years later. Um, and I, I think there was a few a few from the Catholic Church down the street. And uh, we were just all basketball. We didn't care, you know. So anyway, they had a program where it was three. They had three age categories. The youngest kids, they called them pre-midget, would play on Friday nights at uh, 6.30 for the first game, 7.30 for the second game. And the significance of that was the balance of power in Victoria's high school basketball was a function of how many kids had gone through that program were on your team. Hmm. It's why Vic High and Oak Bay were uh, very powerful schools in those days and to a, a similar degree of Squimalt where other high schools have reaped the benefits of it. So uh, that's where that's at. And it also led to me meeting my first ever um, pro athlete of any significance. My uncle used to work for a company called Crown Zellerback. And one of his fellow employees was a fellow by the name of By Bailey. And he got By Bailey to come and talk to us. And it was like this big hero kind of a guy, although he wasn't that big. And for those who don't remember the name By Bailey, he was the guy to score the first ever touchdown for the BC Lions, I think in the 1953 or 54 season. So it was a big deal uh, back in those days. So at any rate, um, there's more tangents, but there's a basis of them. The way you're describing that gym at the start, I thought that you were talking about uh, making a road trip to go play at Ladysmith. You throw in a throw in a couple Homer refs, and you're guaranteed a loss, right? I'm good friends with the McCrory family. Mr. McCrory Senior is a, a avid listener, so I know I, anytime I get a 
chance to take a jab at Ladysmith, I do, you know? <laughs> well, it's funny you would say that because the first ever road trip I ever went on was, I think, in my 10-year-old year, and it was a tournament in Shamanis, and, and it was a big deal. And, and, and I remember my mom getting me a new pair of khaki pants or something to go on this road. It was only a one-day trip. We're up and back. I, I don't even think we overnighted. I think we went up and back on the Saturday, like the same day. Mm -hmm. And there was mm -hmm. a fellow by the name of Dickie Duncan, and who I had a chance to meet back in the 90s, like 30 or 40 years ago when he was in his 90s in hospital. But Dickie Duncan was not only the tournament director, he was the head coach of the home team, and he was the head referee. Mm. And uh, so we went up to play them, and it was a tournament. I'm not sure how many teams were involved, but we had we were quite good. And it was uh, so, notwithstanding Ladysmith, uh, we, we achieved our success in in Duncan, mm. and uh, partly cool. in Shimanis, thanks to Dickie Duncan. Yeah, yeah, that's hilarious. And in this league that you're playing in, who are the coaches? Are they community people? Are they parents? Is it people part of the church? Like, no, no, that's what it, that's, that's what I said. There's fellas like it, it was it was the guys. It was those guys out of the 30s. Mm -hmm. Busher Jackson, Kenny, his son Ken Jackson went on to fame at UVic. Okay. Uh, Ole Goldsmith, whose son uh, Oliver Red Goldsmith was uh, a, a point guard at uh, Vic High. Uh, he's a year younger than me. Ole Goldsmith, uh, who, uh, Harold Turner, Paul Beer, you wouldn't know those people. Harold Harold Turner was the basically the architect of the whole league. And mm -hmm. uh, they were basically volunteer coaches and uh, basically uh, the parents of a good number of the kids that played. Like community ball before community ball, you know? It's, uh... It eventually evolved into a girls program of the same thing. Mm -hmm. so. That's awesome. And then you go on to, uh, you know, we've, we've had a few island guests on the show, but what was island basketball like once you hit high school? How competitive was it? And and talk about those rivalries and the different games and experiences that you had because, you know, the island is unique in itself. I always give my coaching friends, they battle each other all year, but then when they make it to BCs, you can find them all supporting each other. They always want the island to do well, you know? So talk about those times, you know, connected seeing my uncle play and, and what it was like to grow up playing, uh, you know, high school level down there. Yeah, what well, well, and so just to clarify, uh, mm -hmm. I, I was I was never a starter. I was, you know, uh, which is fine. I, I just enjoyed playing so much. I baseball, basketball. I was a better baseball player than basketball, I think. But the, the main rivalry uh, in Victoria was Victoria versus Old Bay. Mount View had some good teams, and so did Esquimalt for sure. And um, and it was it was a big deal to get to the BC High School tournament. And uh, the year 1959 will live in, it will probably live in infamy in Esquimalt and live in fame for, in, in Vic High, the Victoria High Totems. That year, two fellows, uh, uh, Dave, uh, Dave, Dave Black from Mountain View, and he, he went to Vic High on academic reasons because the course he wanted to take was not available at Mountain View. Dave Nelson, a.k.a. Otto, went from Esquimalt to Vic High at Dave Black's urgings for the same mm -hmm. thing. So courses weren't available. So It was I, even I, happening back then, hey? Yeah, well, <laughs> this might have been the genesis of it. Uh, yeah. Courtney Andrews <laughs> would be the uh, uh, likely culprit. But regardless, they now had a powerhouse team, and uh, they were basically untouchable, except for the first game of the season when they played in Esquimalt. And if you want to see a rocket gym, there was bat well, I don't want batteries, but there was bottle cap. There was maybe even bottles. I think Dave Nelson would tell you because he was going back to his alma mater to play yeah. his first game against his team. And a squamal beat Vic High. 
Mm. Yeah, it was just a, just a, an absolute unbelievable upset. But uh, having said that, they didn't lose a game the rest of the year. And in fact, in, at the at UBC in the uh, BC Championship that year, they beat uh, Courtney in the first ever All-Island Final. Keep in mind, there was no three, uh, 30 second or 24 shot clock in those days. Right. I think the game was in, I don't think, I don't think either team hit 40. I think it was in the 30s or something, whatever. But uh, anyway, that was probably, it certainly was the first, 1959, the first time an island team ever won it. And uh, they won on to win it. Vic High won it a couple more times in the mid-60s with guys like Drew, Drew Schroeder, uh, who wanted to be a Roach Scholar uh, at uh, Cambridge, I believe, or Ox- Oxford, perhaps, and uh, Ole Moy Landon and some guys like that. But Oak Bay had some powerhouse teams with Bob Burroughs, Brian McKenzie, guys like that. They won it several times, too. The coaches, Gary Taylor at Oak Bay and Porky Andrews and uh, in uh, Vic High, it was, uh, it was quite a rivalry uh, during that time in the 50s, 60s, and, uh, and beyond. We now have the opportunity to go and we play, we've been the last three years to the Gary Taylor Classic, right? So, um, and when I had the chance to f- uh, meet Otto for the first time, it was funny, it was uh, Kevin Hansen, when they named the scholarship for him at Langara, we just went out for dinner after and then we started talking and then he said, you know, what's your last name? And I said, Mitchell, and then it was on from there, right? Once he realized I was, you know, a part of the Mitchell sort of Esquimalt lineage and then he told me that story about how he transferred over, but I guess... My uncle uh, Gus and uh, my brother, or my dad and his brothers, they still treated him like a really, you know, a good friend. And so he said, I, I ended up spending a lot of time at your uh, at your uncle's house uh, when I was growing up. So it was pretty funny. And um, it's cool that those connections are, are, are still there for you. You're uh, the Mitchell boys were, I don't want to use the word notorious, but they were certainly famous and very influential <laughs> and all good basketball players. Bruce was a tremendous basketball player. He had trouble with a dislocated shoulder, which kept popping out in his late teens, early 20s. Mm. The, that same First United program, by the way, after um, after the guys had finished their high school commitments or whatever, the, 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 they started a, a team called the Victoria Chinooks, mm. uh, as in Chinook Salmon, Chinook. Yep. And uh, they... Uh, what they were offering was ba- was basically better than what UVic offered because UVic was not yet a university. This was the early 60s. Oh, okay, right. Uh, UVic didn't become a university until 1965. Uh, I can attest to that because my cousin, my older cousin Sandra, became literally the first graduate of UVic as a university. But that's oh, another boy. story for another day. But the <laughs> point of the story is that the, the uh, with all due respect to uh, Victoria College in those days before it became University of Victoria, this, this Victoria Chinook program basically had these same coaches, Busher Jackson, uh, Ole Goldsmith, and uh, Howard Tooby was another coach. And they went on to ultimately uh, one year won the Canadian Championship in, uh, back in Hamilton in 1963. And um, so it became quite a program. It fed, a, it fed the Senior A-League too, which uh, had quite a few Victoria, uh, Vancouver teams. IGA Grocers uh, with Billy Joe Price and uh, the Harlem Nocturnes with uh, Vince Knight and those guys, Dave Way and uh, Mike Putt and Jack and so on and so forth. Central Junior High School had the biggest capacity gym in Victoria in those days. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Chinooks and the, and the Victoria Haida Chiefs or Victoria Coffee Max was the other sponsor. Haida uh, Chiefs, we called it because we didn't have a sponsor one year. At any rate, they used to get two and 3,000 people in this gym. Like it was a big deal. It was bigger than junior hockey. 
uh, mm. over there at the time. I mean, Friday and Saturday night doubleheaders, and um, it was a big, big deal in the '60s and uh, you know mid '60s for sure. Such good history, I love it. Um, and it's also good to know that you know we obviously used to give my dad a hard time that his stories were. 80% lies and 20% truth. So it's good to know that the Mitchells were a bit notorious. Well, I'll, I'll give you another story that's been legendary going around other, elsewhere otherwise. There's a friend of mine by the name of Mike Gallo, who was, who was probably the consummate point guard of all time. And we became best friends basically not only in school, but af after high school and, and beyond. We used to think, we used to say we were each other's reciprocal. He was 5'6 and I was 6'5". Well, mm -hmm. it, that also ultimately became a falsehood because he lied. He was only 5'5", five, five, and I grew another inch. I became 6'6". Six, six. There's a litany of stories about him, not the least of which were, were on the bench for the uh, Victoria Coffee Man, the Senior A game one time, and we, were, we, we weren't getting much playing time. At any rate, he was talking about ordering Chinese food at halftime and have, and, and, and this is the first <laughs> half, and have it delivered at halftime. And it, beca it, be it became folklore over there for years, whether it was pizza or Chinese food or whatever, and no cell phones in those days, so we were going to have to go to a pay phone. But the story took on a life of its own. But on a more creditable note, Mike became one of the best elementary school teachers in Victoria. He, uh, he was the predecessor to Kathy Shields at UVic. Mm. He hated flying, so when the uh, when the Vikettes uh, had to go anywhere, Mike hated flying, so he would he would take a day off from school and leave and go by train to Calgary, Regina, Edmonton, Winnipeg, wherever it may be. And he took basically the uh, the first graduating group from that first United program, which I told you evolved from boys to uh, from boys to girls. Mm -hmm. He took that group, and uh, he had three consecutive years. As an undefeated coach, like he went twenty and zero for three years in a row, he got wow. to the national final once and lost, but uh, or was it twice? But whatever, I think he should be in the Basketball Hall of Fame for three years of twenty and zero. But mm -hmm. notwithstanding all of that, uh, he finally gave way to somebody full time, which was Kathy Shields. That was the first time women's basketball coach Uvic had. Mike was doing it, as I say, as a part time thing, as a High, uh, as an elementary school teacher and ultimately an elementary school vice principal. And one of his, with no argument, his most famous student of all time and the guy he had focus, in fact, he even phoned his parents because this kid was such a multifaceted athlete. He finally phoned his parents and told them to stick the basketball and he started a basketball league or team at the school and he would play this kid on one team in the first half with the other team for the second half. And uh, it basically was the genesis of Steve Nash's career. No way. And to give you an idea how good Mike Gallo was, in a senior A game at five foot five, he scored thirty one night, thirty points in a game when there was no three point line. He'd go in in the trees and fake and dish, and if he had thirty points, he probably had another fifteen assists. Mm. So he played the ball. He played the game the way Steve Nash ended up playing the game, and uh, it's not too uh, difficult to draw, you know, draw the arrow between the two of those guys. Wow. So uh, there's another little awesome. tangential story that yeah. hopefully is of interest. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm engaged, but the the listeners can figure it out later. And then, so you move on to to UVic and you know play a little still. And I think the cool part and the interesting part for me personally, because you know your voice and face was like prime time for me. Like if we heard your voice on the TV, there was going to be some sort of cool sports story. Um, and that's kind of my my era. So 
also want to know how kind of broadcasting started to come into your life um, when basketball came to an end. Is it true that the jaw got broken? Is that is that true? And are we going to name who broke it, or is that uh, <laughs> off the record? Is that for the no, not, no, not at Tuesday, all. Tuesday night Zoom league. No, no, not, no. <laughs> I, I certainly name him if I could think of. So, so during this time, um, I went to UVic. Obviously, my year after high school, but at the same time. In grade 11, I got a job at a sporting goods store, pushing a broom for 80 cents an hour. And for those from Vancouver, they would know the two, they would know the store Sparlings, mm. 929 Granville Street. And um, I worked for a store in Victoria, which was basically Victoria's version of Sparlings called Hawking and Forbes. So I did that in my grade 11 year, my grade 12 year, and my first year university. And who knows if this is a turning point, but I failed first year university by half a percent doing virtually no work. Well, I won't say literally, but virtually no work. <laughs> and um, I saw so I was like half a percent away. But, but I love the sporting it so much. I tend, you know, I tend to go and think with both feet. So I continued on there full time. And there was one year where there was, well, I had quite a forward thinking owner by the name of Bud Hawking. And there was two other partners. Bud Hawking was always a go-getter about getting new business. And one day into our store walked uh, two fellas, you may or may not remember the names of Punch Emlack and, and uh, Stafford Smythe. Mm. And we're talking about the owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs and the head coach of the Toronto Maple Leaf Hockey Club. And they were moving their farm team from Denver to Victoria. Uh, this may sound like it's not pertinent, but believe me, I'll tie all the loose ends together. No. So what what was happening is uh, they were bringing the team to Victoria and uh, they were talking about who they're going to have their supplier out in Victoria was. Now, most of their equipment would come from a place called Doug Laurie Sporting Goods, literally in Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. But uh, they would have to get the sticks and the skates and things like that from local stores, plus the fact they wanted to sell an ad in their program. So despite our forward thinking and whatnot, we still only got half the business. Our competition down the street got the stick business and we got the skate business. So as it happened, that required more servicing and so on than Sticks did. Every day that winter of 63, 64, I would, uh, the arena in Victoria was halfway between where I lived, up behind Mayfair Shopping Center, and where my store was. So I would stop in the arena every day uh, just to see the trainer, just in case they needed anything. So uh, that led to me halfway through the year, the trainer sending me down the hallway to see the other teams from Portland was Berlin Hodges, San Francisco Seals was Bill Gray, uh, L.A. Blades was a guy named Jack Kern who became the Lakers trainer during their uh, uh, during their years. Uh, what do you call it? Um, Showtime. Showtime years. Uh, Jack yeah. Kern, who, uh, mm. uh, and then uh, San Diego, and uh, so anyway, uh, I did some business with them. So the second year, the trainer said. We should get all the business, never mind the other store. So we got all the business the next year. And that same year, I started phoning these other teams in, in Seattle, San Francisco. Murray Costello was the general manager. Costello, you may, might remember the Flying Fathers. Anyway, the point was I was doing as much business with the out-of-town teams as I was with Victoria. Right. And during one of those times, the San Francisco Seals came and stayed at the hotel right across the street from our store, right across from the Odeon Theater and our store at the Dominion Hotel. And a guy named Charlie Burns came in the store one day. He came in the store and said, uh, "Hey, you know, expansion's coming next year. You should uh, work on work on getting that business." So I wrote letters to Ren Blair, the general manager in Minnesota, to uh, Philadelphia it was Bud Poyle and uh, Lynn Patrick, Muzz Patrick's, or pardon me, Lester Patrick's son, 
who grew up with my dad. To make a long story short, although it's too late now, I ended up designing and selling California their first NHL uniforms. And the summer of 67 of expansion, I was uh, working on getting them. In essence, they offered me a job to come down to Oakland and, and you know, work with them. That, that didn't happen. But in the meantime, Toronto sold its Victoria franchise to Phoenix. If I was in the media at that time, it would have been a scoop. But I found out who the owner in Phoenix was. I phoned him. I said, Mr. Whitlow, he said, um, oh, thank God you called. I had no idea what I was going to do. Keep in mind, our store was doing about $240,000 of business a year in the early 60s. Both of these deals were $100,000 deals. So I basically did the whole store's almost complete business in two sales to carry on since I'm on this path. Do you get a raise at least? <laughs> well, not, no, not really. The, the, uh, <laughs> what I did do was the trainer, uh, the Phoenix trader asked me if I would drive his car down to Phoenix because they were going to start their, they're going to have their training camp in Victoria, which where I had all my uniforms delivered, but they were opening in Vancouver. And uh, then they were going to play in Seattle, Portland, and then go down to, uh, then go down to, uh, to Phoenix after that before they played, uh, before they played San Diego. So in October of 67, I go to, I go to Vancouver and watch the game at the old forum. And the, and the broadcaster there asked me to pick the three stars. So, you know, that happened. And then the next day I'm driving down to Seattle, I get caught on the border with six pair of Chakaberry skates in the trunk of the car for the Seattle totems. And so I had to go through all that schmozzle. <laughs> went to Seattle, went to Southern Sea in Portland, so I came back to my, so before I left, they offered me a job. And uh, in essence, I took it. I figured, hey, I got a connection that, you know, I, I got to even, I'm going to keep this connection with all this business going to be coming in. So mm-hmm. I'm going to take leave of absence from the store for about four or five months. So I came back to Victoria to tell my partners this, and they treated me like I had the bubonic plague or whatever. So they, they were upset, but they made me quit as an employee of my own store. But I went down to Phoenix. Walt McKechnie was my was my roomie for you Toronto fans. He was my roommate as rookie year pro. Uh, came back the following April, and that's when uh, a big turning point in my life. Uh, having lost my dad to a heart attack two years earlier, this was the second most devastating thing to happen to me. Eight years of my life down the drain. So I went back to university. So um, that was going to be my decision, even though the Phoenix Roadrunners wanted me to go back down to Phoenix. I said, no, I'm going to go back to finish school. So in the meantime, a friend of mine and one of my basketball teammates, John Devlin, had a, had a menswear store across the street called Bell's Menswear. This is near Yates and Douglas in Victoria. And they had a program, a radio program broadcast in the store that was very much like CKNW's Roving Mike with Bill Hughes. Good morning, friends. I don't know if you remember that, 845 every morning. Mm-hmm. So the Victoria version of it was um, a roving reporter. And the difference was it wasn't t- pre-taped like the NW one was. It, um, it was done live. And the guy hosting mm-hmm. the show was the sports director and the former play-by-play broadcaster of the Victoria Maple Leafs. So I'm the guest on this show at 845 one morning. And uh, I, guess I'm, I guess my story went a little longer than he expected, not unlike this part of your show. <laughs> and uh, so not only did I have the guy laughing so much, he missed a commercial break and the nine o'clock news was three minutes late. So we go for, we, we go for coffee afterwards and he basically offers me a job. And I said, no, I'm going to go back to school. So I'm back at school. Uh, my first, my second year, my second crack at, at, uh, at first year. And I, and I basically aced 
uh, you know, first year, I mean, I'm seven years older and like uh, what I call a reverse sabbatical. I was out for seven. Um, and I played senior B basketball that year. And uh, one of my teammates was a guy by the name of Bob Bell, who was the UVic Vikings head coach. So my second year back at UVic, I, I go out just to just for a run, just to keep in shape. Next thing I know, I make the team. I, I certainly didn't expect to. I, I'm not even sure I really wanted to, but I made the Vikings. So uh, that's fine. So in November of that year, we played a touring team called the Harlem Clowns. Yes. And it was a long rebound. There was no three-point shooting in those days, but there was a long rebound. I'm out there, and uh, I go up for it, and me and another guy, uh, you know, battle for it. And I'm about 6'6", about 170 at the time. This guy was about 6'4", 250. And he got the better of the rebound, and around came his elbow, and a whack right below the nose. Uh, I was cut for nine stitches and uh, taken to emergency. Uh, was released that night. Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. Monday morning, I'm, I'm like I'm still concussed and whatever, but mm -hmm. there's something not right. You could you could move my upper teeth like it was a false plate, but in fact it wasn't. So. We go to my GP. He's not sure whether to send me to an oral surgeon or a, a plastic surgeon. So uh, an oral surgeon by the name of Mark Fisher is the guy that did the surgery on me just after Mike Gallo brought me a bar of Macintosh toffee before, you know. But uh, anyway, um, I said to the doctor, I said, I sure hope at these prices you got more than a C-plus in surgery. And he wired me shut for seven weeks. Wow. So I had Christmas dinner that year through a blender. Needless to say, I had to drop a couple of courses. So I didn't get mm -hmm. back on the basketball court at UVic till late January, early February. How much weight you lose. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I didn't have much to lose to start with. But yeah. at any rate, that all led to, the, to me looking for a summer job that year that had weird hours where I could go to summer school to pick up the courses. So lo and behold, I'm, I'm, I'm working part-time again at the same store same situation, same interview situation. At any rate, I'm working for my friend at Bill's Menswear again, same Thursday morning, same show, same interviewer, Keith McKenzie, God rest his soul. And uh, uh, this time he said, you know, two years ago when uh, after you did the job, he said, the guy that uh, took the job has got to be the manager of the radio station in Winnipeg. And so now there's the, the vacancies there again. So uh, that led to me starting uh, my radio career. And um, May of 1970, five days before Bobby Orr scored that flying goal on Mother's Day, May the 10th. So that was my first year. It was also the year that our baseball team won the, won the BC and the Canadian Championship. And uh, I went to South America with them, uh, with Dave McKay from Vancouver and a few other guys uh, the rest of that year. But I, I came to quit the radio in September thinking it was a part-time job. And they said, we don't want you to quit. We like what you're doing. So I tell people my summer job lasted 38 years. <laughs> so I was there, I was there for two and a half years at CKNW for three and then to BCTV for, which is now global for 22 years. And then uh, some other stops at uh, CKNW team 1040 of CBC mm -hmm. and uh, team 1040 and, uh, and Mojo. So, yeah, but you didn't Crazy. expect that answer. <laughs> no, no, it's awesome. Um, a question for you. So, it what was if, a fracture? By the way, it was a fractured yeah. maxilla, a fractured maxilla, which is the which is the bone your teeth are set into vertically, okay. and it's very strong up and down. It's not so much. It's not so strong 
uh, east to west, especially with a 250-pound elbow coming right at it. So, Which you found out, yeah. The hard yeah. way, I think. <laughs> So what was it about you at kind of that younger time in your life that was willing to just take that risk be like, yeah, I'll drive down all the way with, you know, with this equipment and go for it. Like, was it how you were raised? Was it just your personality that you were, you know, you were adventurous? I I guess so. I mean, I I would do, I would just, I was treating it like, well, when the NHL team offered me the job in Oakland, I went to to talk to my partner about it. And I said, Hey guys, this is the situation. It's going to be, you know, whatever you're going to need, need somebody. And, when I'm gone or this is going to happen, I'm going to have access to all this, all this business we're going to get. And um, I, I don't know, in hindsight, the business started going downhill after I left. I'm not trying to be egomaniacal about it, but who mm. knows if it was the right decision or not. But the point was, I was doing it with the best of intentions. I had no idea, no intention of quitting my job at Sporting. I've been eight years. I'm 23 years old. I've been there over a third of my life. I loved it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, I fully expected to come back and just right into, you know, right back in seamlessly back in the store again. I loved going there every day. Mm-hmm. And so uh, then the hockey thing happened. Uh, I, and besides which, I never thought I was going to get into radio. I, I never thought I'd leave Victoria. I never thought I'd get in the media. Uh, and I never thought, uh, you know, that all of what happened. What, a story I, I, I left out for you, all those friends I told you about in the Fairfield area of Victoria, which is where the Patrick family lived. Lester Patrick, mm-hmm. by the way, gave me my first stick. Have you always been this good with names? I know it was just part of my heritage, but yeah, my, my, I, I had probably five or six of the funniest uncles and aunts, for that matter, you'd ever want to meet with from the sense right. of humor standpoint. But yeah. um, my my youngest uncle was Jim, who just passed away a few years ago in his mid nineties. He was a good friend of a guy by the name of Ted Reynolds, and Ted Reynolds, who was uh, who's in the BC Sports Hall of Fame and used to used to run it, as a matter of fact, for a while. The first time I was ever on the radio, I was four years old. He used to do a kid's show from the Victoria Public Library, which ironically is about 100 feet from my sporting goods store. Fast forward five years. Uh, the next time I'm on the radio, I'm with Ted Reynolds as he as he, he's out at the airport doing a remote, wishing the Victoria Shamrocks good luck as they get on the plane to go back to Peter Road, play on the 1955 Man Cup, I believe it was. And the next time... Uh, I saw Ted Reynolds or heard from Ted Reynolds was my first year in radio in Victoria. It would have been June of 1971. Mm-hmm. And so I've been in the business by this time, maybe a year and change. And he offered me the job to be on TV at CBC in Vancouver. And I turned him down. I, I, whether I was homesick or nervous or what, I don't really know. Like I'd been in Phoenix a couple of years earlier, but I said, uh, Ted, I think I could do the job to your satisfaction. I'm not sure I could do it to my satisfaction. I've only been in the business like a year. So I turned the job down, and uh, the guy that got it instead was a fellow by the name of Steve Armitage, who was one of the best broadcasters in Canadian history and done a ton of Olympics with swimming and things like that. So who knows how my career would have changed if I'd accepted that job. But, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I told you there was going to be tangents. No, no, I'm loving it. This is awesome. Steve Armitage, that's a crazy name. Um, And then you move over you know, to the mainland this way and, and talk a bit, like I mentioned, you know, always looked forward to my years playing and grew up going to the Agrodome a ton, but just they're always having the, the nightly recaps of the games, you know, you guys did such a good job of covering the tournament and then always kind of your version of like 
a little bit of a one shining moment, right? With some music and some cuts and some highlights of some great plays over the weekends. And was that fun for you to, to go back to those basketball roots and be a part of it? Because it always seemed like you were really enjoying it behind the, the screen as well. Absolutely. It was, a, it was, it was one of the highlights of my, notwithstanding the pro sports I got to cover, the Lions and the Canucks, et cetera, but the, the tournament was part of my heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, even, even though in my year, which was 61, they beat us and we finished eighth. So uh, whatever, but, but I used to love covering it. And I'll tell you two quick stories. One, well, I guess I better redefine quick. Yeah, the listeners know by now they're prepared. <laughs> <laughs> You might remember the name Gary Rabel. He was a sports. Uh, he was at CKW, then CKWX, and whatnot. And uh, it was him and I, and I can't one or two newspaper guys. And we're we're watching a, a, a late afternoon game one day. Like we'd spend as much of the day there as we possibly could, especially in the yeah. radio time. Could we just phone in the report? We didn't have to go back and do TV. So mm-hmm. this is my fir- this was my first tournament for CKW Radio. There was a young lady, one of the cheerleaders from Templeton High School, and. Uh, and we got, I think it was Bill Cunningham, the province photographer. At any rate, we, we basically unofficially nominated her as Miss Hoop 1973. <laughs> and uh, we, we didn't really allow ourselves to go down the path because somebody brought it up. Uh, we should try and find out what her mother, where her mother is because that's what she's going to look like in 20 years. But anyway, so that was <laughs> one of the little behind-the-scenes stories. But... Uh, <laughs> Another, but when I got into television, one of the things I tried to do, and I, I was just a terrible editor and a terrible manager of time in terms of how much it took to edit it, especially when we're doing it on film, not videotape. Mm. But the Beach Boys had a song uh, in that era called Be True to Your School. And it's one of the most favorite things I ever did was, you know, be true to your school. If you ever want to look up, Google it or wherever you find it. Yeah. And we put all the video to it, except it took longer to do, and it didn't make the deadline for the show it was supposed to be on, so it had to wait an extra day. But it would cer- certainly stand the test of time. So it was a, uh, that was one of the most favorite things I, I had to do. And uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, when the Richmond Colts had their, had their dynasty, there was a fellow by the name of Bill Kartner, mm-hmm. who was the principal of Steveston and, and, uh, and then Richmond. Yep. And he actually had me come out and uh, MC and host uh, some pep rallies at both schools. Uh, mm. I think they were noon hours, if memory serves. But it was a big deal. I mean, uh, both for the Steveston Packers and for the Richmond Colts, the gym was packed, and it was you know they, that was in the in the Ron Putsey era, and uh, the you know the the teams they had, and um, so it was. Those were some of the sidelight memories of it as well. But uh, the tournament itself, it was. Even all my buddies, we we always used to, never mind professionally. Even if we were off work, we'd make sure we go to the semis on Friday night for sure. Yeah. And then the final. And uh, when's the last time you've uh, taken the opportunity to go to the tournament? Do you still to this day, or is it kind of just no, if it, you get the, no? Yeah, no. It's I I, I confess it's the the logistics of it. This Langley is too is too much of a road trip. Our guys didn't really want to go. I've been to I've been to a couple out there when they first went out there, but. Yeah. Um, from it was you know UBC was one thing having to get there from the island, and then mm-hmm. there was the Agrodome, and then there was the Pacific Coliseum, uh, and so on and so forth, and then back to the Agrodome for years. Um, but then Langley just became too many, you know. So call me a wimp, but that's it's been a few years since I've been there. Hey, it's your world. We're just living in it. Just, well, you know. <laughs> when I say the words Main Street to you, what do you think of? 
I think of urban. I think of shops. I think of restaurants. I think of a place to go get a drink. Maybe a great burger. Relax with my wife. So many different options. Now, our good friend Shane Meyer is back. And they're located in Mount Pleasant. 3283 Main Street. Good Lad Clothing. One of our two sponsors. So appreciative of them. We would really appreciate if you went out of your way. Swing by the shop. Check it out. Say what's up. Grab some jeans. Maybe a shirt. Some men's products. Grooming products for yourself. And support local. We appreciate Good Lad Clothing. And they appreciate what a hoops journey is doing swing by and let us know your thoughts thank you to good lad i want to take a moment to give a shout out to one of our major sponsors the parkside brewery located at 2731 murray street in port moody parkside offers great beer like the don pilsner the dusk pale ale and my personal favorite not just for the can the dreamboat hazy ipa Parkside has been very supportive of who we are. A couple of former basketball players, Sam Payne and Travis McLean, love the game and they love what we're doing. And we would really appreciate it if you would go out of your way to support them. If you can't make it to the brewery or aren't comfortable, find them in any local government store and please support. Hope to see you at Parkside. This, the follow-up question was just going to be kind of in your time and having the opportunity to go to the semis as, as often as you could with friends, you know, how much did you see the game change and grow? And, and maybe is there a couple games that stand out to you that you can recall or some great players or moments? I mean, you've already mentioned Ron Putsy, who's you yeah, know, one but, of the best all time. But Well, in general terms, like among the things that, you know, in the Porky Andrews era of the 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. everything was set plays. There was no shot clock. You could stall. Uh, everything went. Everything went through the five. Everything. We never even numbered the positions of the players. One, two, three, four, five. It was the post or the wing or whatever it may be. And then, you never called them power forwards, even though that's what they were, or point guards or shooting guards. But, but every everything used to go through the center. The center was set mm-hmm. on you know, either at the elbow or at the high post or low post, and you'd throw the ball in and go pick off the ball and you know things like that. So, the structure of the game in that era evolved into into more uh, more run and gun for lack of a better term and and then the shooting became better and then the three-point line and the three-point how can i put it uh, emphasis has only been the last three or four or five years i think yeah. um like like I, I go to more ubc thunderbird games now than i do uh high school games but i can remember going to see games at uh, um at, uh, at Kitsilano, uh, when Randy Coots had his had his uh, his teams there, and uh, you, know, you know, just just the athleticism and the size and the, you know the conditioning of the guys, I mean, they're, they're far better athletes now than well, they're good athletes in our era, but certainly not to the extent or the size mm-hmm. that they are now. Yeah, and of course, as the bedroom community shifted, of course, it's moving further up the valley. For sure, that that's just my overview of it. But and as far yeah. as particular games are concerned. I mean, there, there, there had to be the odd buzzer beater in there, but this we're talking many years ago, so. Don't age yourself too badly. Well, <laughs> yeah. Outside of basketball, I mean, the, the other opportunities that you had, um, you know, the Olympic Games, the summer and winter games, like in BC, just so many cool things. Did you ever really, and you said you never imagined being on the media side of things. Did you allow yourself time during those moments 
to be like, wow, this is really cool? Or were you just always maintaining professionalism and trying to just do the best job you could? Or did you give yourself an opportunity to sit back and go, wow, I'm just, you know, a kid from the island and this is kind of fun? Both, really. I mean, uh, as I said earlier, I never thought I'd leave the sporting business. I never thought I'd leave Victoria. I never thought I'd get in the media. As a matter of fact, I had a very jaundiced opinion about the media before I got into it. I thought oh, how exploitive it was and some other thoughts about it. But yeah. the more I was into it, the more natural I felt about mm-hmm. it. I didn't. I only got the opportunity to go to two Olympics to work them. I got, of course, see the Vancouver 2010. But 1994, I got to do um, the games in. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, not, yeah, yeah. 94 was in uh, Barcelona. I did play the play of volleyball. But I also did some other things, including covering the closing ceremonies for the track, of, uh, you know, on the track for the marathon and whatnot. And my job was to interview the Canadian athletes. Was that 92? That was, no, that was 94. Okay. Because that would be the dream team, right? Sorry, it wasn't. It was, yes, I'm sorry. It was 92, and it was the dream team. Yeah. And NBC studios were right across the hallway from us at CTV. Right. So yeah. So yeah. So this was the this was the uh, July August of 1992, and because of what I did there, never mind the volleyball, but just the other stuff. The producers, when the next time they came around, this is the first time they switched from being every four years when they started alternating uh, two years winter, two years summer. You know, and, and back where that. So there right. was two Olympics when CTV had the rights, 92 in, in Barcelona, and the 94 in Lillehammer, Norway, and I was right. given. I don't know what the term was, a jack of all trades, man about town job. Lillehammer just covering offbeat stories. And uh, the credit for that goes to a fellow by John Shannon, who you see now on Rogers Sportsnet. He was one of the producers along with Doug Beforth. So uh, they were ultimately, you know, the highlights of my career, those, those moments. And uh, John Shannon said then, which is what, 30 years ago, almost, he mm-hmm. said, uh, People will remember this for the rest of their lives. I was doing things like trying on a guy's luge suit, which was about maybe 10 <laughs> sizes too small for me. Uh, There's still yeah. video evidence of that? Yeah, there. Oh, yeah, no, it'd be, I mean, you Google, you find this somewhere, and there was uh, various offbeat things, like tra- like a track meet through the center of Lillehammer, which is, Lillehammer, to describe it as a city, is sort of a cross between Penticton and Nelson. It's on the okay. side of a hill. It's a little wee town, and uh, but a very picturesque town with a lake and so on and so forth. So I call it a cross between Nelson and, but not nearly the size. It was just you know, um, and then the other thing I remember, uh, well, it's where I met Jim Nance from CBS among other things. Mm. But it's also we went down down for a beer one night. We opened the door of this bar and you you walk one foot inside and this wall of smoke hit us right in the face. And I'd quit smoking long before this. And so we just went back to the media center and had our beers back there. We couldn't even go downtown. Mm. The, the pollution was so bad. It was just ridiculous. But uh, at right. any rate, um, the places I've been and things I did, I, I guess the, the one year that became famous or infamous, depending on what side of the fence you're on, is when I when it was suggested I try to break security at the Lillehammer Olympics, and I did it. I got up to the top of the flame in the morning of the opening ceremonies and tried to lean over with a big lighter to light the flame, but I couldn't quite reach. And it got CSIS involved. It got the FBI involved. It got security I gonna, involved. And, um, I was going to say, So yeah. people couldn't figure out how I did it. Yeah. So, so uh, that, that, you know, that set the stage for the rest of the three weeks. So. That's amazing. <laughs> so cool. 
did you get a sense of like, I mean, obviously the Olympic experience, how do you describe it? Is it, we've had a few Olympians, uh, you know, we've had Jay Triano on and, and a bunch of the, the guys from that uh, 2000 Olympic team in Sydney, right? And one of the things they all talk about is just the Olympic experience. And is it an energy like you've never felt before? I mean, you've been to many different sporting events. What What's the energy like for an event like that? It's a bit, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, w- when you get together with the whole crew and whatnot, or back in the studio or whatever. But in in Barcelona, my daily job was to get ride the tram, or uh, like I wasn't one of the stars, as it were. So it was it was up to us to get to our own venue. So it would be like they had us in small room hotels. So I guess the the bigger stars got to stay in better hotels, like five star hotels. We were in like, you know, like three-star hotels and whatever. I mean, they were nice. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But we would have to take a, a cab or a bus 20 minutes or so away. You'd be walking along the street and, and then you walk in through this door and here's this little nondescript building and it's, and you walk in and then, and there's a gym in the basement, almost flashing mm-hmm. back to the first United days. But so this is where the, this is where the men's and women's volleyball tournament was. And you would be sitting in a venue. I'm trying to think one that, one that would be around here that would be like it. Um, it's it, it would be smaller than most high school venues, really, the seating and everything else like that. I mean, more than I don't think you could put two or three hundred people in there. And there's mm-hmm. only seating on one side, and then uh, that was seven days a week. Mm-hmm. And you go there at around seven in the morning, and you'd leave there around eight or nine in the evening. You try to Ooh. grab a meal somewhere in between when you could or whatever. But they were ten and twelve hour days. And uh, you'd be doing things on tape. You, you do, you'd be doing it live, but you'd be doing it to tape because of the nine-hour time difference between, well, never mind Vancouver, six-hour time difference to the eastern time zone from Toronto to Barcelona. And mm-hmm. so that's what every day was like. So it, it was very Spartan. You'd get a chance to go out for a bite to eat and unwind a bit, you know, for a beer perhaps or whatever, but you wouldn't certainly wouldn't be banned burning the candle at both ends. Step later in the games, I, I do remember dancing with Silicon Laman on her broken leg after she won the bronze medal in rowing. Boy. Because volleyball had finished and so you know, I'd somehow bumped into her at this venue and so that was one of the things that happened. Mm-hmm. But Yeah. What's what's the body like? What was my body like or yeah, her body like? Your... <laughs> <laughs> well, yours. Like, could you well, lie and would you be able to pass for an athlete at this point and say, "Oh yeah, you know, I'm uh, well." I'm a power except for the fact the, I was uh... fifty years old, I you know, I, was, I, I just my, <laughs> I wasn't that any great. Yeah, in terms of passing for an athlete, I, I never attempted to. I mean, I could, you know, I tried lots of things, but I never never tried that. Now, having said that, the uh, the Lillehammer experience was a little different because I didn't have a venue. To go to any given day, I, I would, we would be doing man on the street type stuff, and uh, I do remember going over to where about seven or eight general managers in the National Hockey League were staying all in one house and knocking on the door one day, and uh, and the guy answered, I think, a uh, Jerry Meehan, who was with Buffalo, I think, at the time, uh, he answered. He says, "Oh, I says, is Harry?" And he says, "Well, I'm asking for Harry Sinden." Well, yeah. Well, he said, uh, "You should have called first. I said, "Well, I did." He said, "Who answered the phone?" I said, "Harry did." He says, "Oh." He says, well, Harry's a little tough shape, so apparently Harry was out the night before. So he didn't remember the fact that I called and said, come on over. But uh, <laughs> anyway, the interview is such as it was. But, uh, <laughs> but, 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 don't, but, but trust me, at, at Olympics, I can't speak for the athletes, but I, I'm sure they will tell you too. 
the um, you go to Olympics as a fan. That's one thing. It's party time. It's anything but that. For if you're working in the media, there they're long days, and you've had to have done a lot of homework before you even get there. Mm-hmm. It's not Mardi Gras time, believe me. Uh, there are times, you know, the wrap up party and the, the end of it, and all the rest of it. Of course, but it, it eventually goes by so quickly, it's unbelievable. Thanks for sharing all that stuff, and then you transition. Did you ever, you know, you get onto something like being a part of talk radio? Did you ever think there'd be a time where? radio on tv would be entertaining for people like i always found that interesting and then we're moving into this whole you know the podcast thing that is just completely blown up and when you think about where you started from that foundation to where it is now you've seen a lot of things hey for sure and i this is true when i say i I have often thought of this i have often thought of this i didn't Mm -hmm. do a very good job in talk radio i didn't let myself be me i worked with some pretty good co-hosts one of whom is rick ball Mm-hmm. And I always wanted to work with Barry McDonald, but it just never worked out. When I went to, to, to team, I, I sort of had a degree of apprehension about um, taking phone calls and doing stuff and, 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 and basically not being having the right answer to this random phone call listener asking me a question that I think I should do. I was almost paranoid about it. One of the things I did do, I, I, I've often thought, and, and this came from the year I worked for the hockey team in Phoenix, it basically taught me to always check both sides of a story. So I was reluctant to be opinionated about various topics without knowing the story on both sides of the equation, which led me to making sure I had the best guests I could get my hands on. And among them were, were John Davidson and Bob McKenzie and Al Strachan, and they, mm-hmm. guys that were authorities on any given field or you know whatever the case may be. So I would have them be the horse's mouth to answer questions from listeners and so on and so forth. And in retrospect, hearing what hit it, what the talk uh, radio has evolved to, for example, I think Matt Sikaris is the epitome of, um, of, of what journalism could be or is uh, in Canada. Never mind, you know, like uh, as, as an investigative and thorough journalist, he's it. Mm-hmm. Um, others have... Other things they're good at, like I, I think I would have been better if I'd let myself go, let myself go a little bit for, uh, if you know what I mean. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting reflection though, because you're talking about waking up in Lilyhammer every day and just doing a random thing, but when you started out, you just didn't have it. You needed to kind of just let go a little bit and, and just be comfortable with yourself. Hey. Yeah. Exactly. And and it's and, and I think it's some of the some things that happen, like you know. Even what we're doing here, I mean, I, I've rambled on on some stories just, you know, incessantly. And um, it's, this is what I was going back to tell you a little bit earlier about being a bad editor. Like if, if we had to do what you and I are doing right now in a, in a more finite time, be it five minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour or whatever, I might have got to the point a little bit quicker. Uh, <laughs> but, but I thought you might enjoy some of the tangents. Um, yeah. You know, that, that led me to getting to where I was going in some of these anecdotes. I mean, this what, what you and I are doing right now would probably, with commercial breaks and whatnot, a normal radio probably take a week to tell. <laughs> so, yeah, that's true. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I, you know, for better or for worse. I mean, I don't know. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the fun part. Is I think this platform does allow, and the thing that we enjoy about the show is the storytelling and letting people hear 
things about, you know, your upbringing and the things that you've been through to get to wherever you are, right? And like you say, that can't happen in a six minute segment with some commercials. It's, you need that time to allow some banter and some fun stories and some yeah. serious stuff and all that. So it, it is, it's cool. It's great. And we're, and we're thankful for you being with us. You got one more like funny story or a good one before we get into some rant. I got some random questions for you. Um, I don't know if you read my text message, but uh, yeah, I did. Uh, I actually, <laughs> if I can find it here, uh, yeah. I'm the front of my desk. I've had people for time immemorial time I should write a book. So about yeah. two months ago, I got this pad of paper and I wrote down. I started writing down different topics, and I, I got to, I got to fifty as almost as soon as I could. What I did find, by the way, is the 17th Annual BC High School Invitational Basketball Tournament Program from the year I played, which I had the video back up. I could show you again, but uh, but anyway, uh, funny stories. I can still see it, by the way. Oh, can you? Yeah. So don't start picking your nose or no, taking no. your shirt off or anything. Oh yeah, look at that. Yeah. Love it. So. Uh, is the are the banners on the side there? Are that all all the teams? Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, that's yeah, cool. that's that's those are the champions who won it right from the beginning. That's cool. Yeah, um, that's super cool. I'll, I'll see if I can show you my picture here. <laughs> Love it. Where are you? Um, hang on a sec. <laughs> he needs the glasses for it. I love it. You got to do some editing now, <laughs> For those who can't see it right now. Uh, John is showing us the provincial pamphlet from his high school days. Anyway, that's, that's awesome. Memorial Gym. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so. great. Anyway, um, now it's surrounded. Now it's surrounded by apartment towers. But. So funny stories. Let me just think. Um, no pressure. Like I could tell you a Tiger Williams story. Yes, let's hear um, a Tiger Williams story. So, Forbes, do you know who? Do you know who Tiger Williams is? My goodness gracious, do you think I'm... Well, actually, you know, that's fair. It's way before my time, but I do. I do. Okay, good. Just making sure. So, so Tiger Williams, uh, to this day, I still believe, leads the National Hockey League in penalty minutes. Dave Tiger Williams. Yep, that's true. And I first met or knew of him when he played junior for Swift Current and when I watched the newest Mr. Bruins play. Yeah. So fast forward to the early 80s when he got traded from Toronto to the Canucks. There was a fellow, there used to be a thing, a, a newspaper insert across every newspaper in Canada called uh, The Weekend Magazine, and the, and the sports editor's name was Earl McRae. And he had a rather vivid description of, of Tiger Williams in one of his articles. The mistake I made uh, is, was I didn't acknowledge that during the intermission interview when I, when I interviewed Tiger. So it's his first game with the Canucks, and, I, and my job, I was doing both color commentary and hosting and I would do intermission interviews. So I went down between the benches at the Pacific Coliseum, and Dave Tiger Williams, who knew who I was, he was very media savvy. He knew where everybody was or whatever. So I'm talking to him, and I said, you know, welcome to Vancouver, yada, yada, the typical stuff. And I said, has anybody ever uh, commented on the fact that your face looks like a sack full of broken doorknobs? <laughs> and... and, and <laughs> And which which is the exact phrasing that Earl McRae had used in his Weekend Magazine article, and so Tiger, I mean, what's he going to do? Hammering me right there? He said, "Well, no, but if you want to step outside, we can discuss it or something." And like he was, he knew I was being facetious, uh, if not, yeah, yeah. you know, you know, whatever. But I mean, that's that's just one that people were mentioning from time to time. Um, 
there were oh, there were times we used to travel with the Vancouver Whitecaps, and sometimes we'd be on the road we'd be on the road a week at a time. Our uh, director's name was Henry Arizawa, and our producer's name was a young guy by the name of, of uh, Larry Isaac. Now Larry Isaac has gone on to produce Hockey Night in Canada. He's done I think at least fifteen, and might be up as many as twenty Olympics countless world championships he'll be going to tokyo japan if if the games go on he'll be going there so but this was in the early years of his career would have been the early 80s and we had a day off on a sunday and so henry's nickname was radar uh, because he never got lost no matter what city we're in with one exception and he's very proud but uh, at any rate we go to the beverly hills hilton hotel so uh, that's fine we're just there for sunday brunch just to see how the other half lives <laughs> so we're finishing up, and uh, so we send, quote, Larry, the gopher, out to get the car to bring it around for us. So we score up, uh, we get his breakfast and so on and so forth, and then we go out. And uh, so he brings the car around, and he, and he resumes his rightful place back in the back seat of the car, and I'm in the shotgun seat. <laughs> and we said, uh, did you did you tip the the valet guy? And he, and, um, and he said, yeah. And he said, how much did you give him? And Larry says, 100 bucks. This is 1980, what, early 80s. A yep. hundred bucks? He said, why'd you do that? He said, well, the guy in front of me gave his valet a hundred bucks, so I thought I'd better do the same as he did. He said, who was the guy in front of you? And he said, Ringo. <laughs> so Was it actually? Yeah, it was. Well, I don't oh take his word for it, but he, he would have recognized him. And <laughs> so... <laughs> I I, uh, I I should have I, I could tell I could tell you the story about the Wayne Gretzky trade. That was a big deal when he got traded from Los Angeles to St. Louis. And I, I figured my good friend Jack Quinn, the former manager of the Vancouver Canadiens baseball team, he would be a help if I phoned him because he was now with Harry Arnest as his president with the St. Louis Blues. So I phoned uh, uh, I phoned Jack in St. Louis and said, you know, how's Wayne getting from L.A up to Vancouver because the St. Louis Blues were the next opponent for the Canucks and Wayne was in LA and uh, whatever. So Jack gave me some innocuous answer just to get me off the trail or whatever. So, uh, but I wasn't taking no for an answer. And so I started doing some, making some research. I ended up calling YVR and uh, in particular the control tower. And it turns out uh, a good friend of mine, an old high school buddy of mine was in the control tower. He says, well, he says, there is a flight leaving from, uh, from such and such an airport destined for Vancouver at, uh, at roughly this time or whatever. And I said, that, I said, that's all I needed to know. So I, I phoned, I phoned a private airline company. I found out who it was. And I said, uh, I said, that flight you've got coming up to Vancouver, the charter, I said, are they landing at the main terminal or the South terminal? And all of a sudden I hear somebody put the hand over the phone and said, Hey, Herb, is that flight going to be landing South terminal? And, and I didn't care what the answer was. Because I knew the only place they could go was the South Terminal. All I, by him even asking the question, I knew there was a flight coming up that would, you know, that had to be it. Yeah. So then I phoned the station, got a cameraman, arranged to meet them, and by the by the time we hustled out, the plane was just landing, and we we had pulled up, and we were waiting as as the t- plane taxied toward the uh, toward where it was going to be, you know, serviced or whatever. Gretz and his uh, agent Mike Barnett and a couple of others get off of, and they're looking down, and we're like maybe a hundred feet away behind the uh, behind this fence, and uh, they just about cried. they couldn't believe, you know, that anybody found the least of all the media. Mm-hmm. So thank God I did, I'd interviewed Wayne a few other times before that. So anyway, they they hop on the limo, 
which is right outside the plane. They have, they have, there's only one way out, and that's right past us. So I'm standing in the middle of the street, but they pull over regardless. And I said, so, so I'm about to open the back door and get in the car. And he says, no, we'll get out. And this is, he said, before we, uh, before we talk, he says, how did you find me? I says, well, I can't tell you. And I, I never did. He, to this day, doesn't know how I found him. Mm-hmm. But we got the interview on the noon news hour that day. Meanwhile, the practice was at, was at what was then four rinks. It might be eight rinks, eight rinks or whatever. But that's where he was bound for. But we had it on the air before he even got to the rink. That's awesome. The only other story I can think of that rivals that was the day that Phil Esposito got traded. And uh, you guys probably weren't even born then, but this was 1975. And it was my first year in, in television. Close, but not yet. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So... Uh, <laughs> It was a big thing. You can imagine Phil Esposito getting traded from the, the Boston Bruins had just won the Stanley Cup in 1970 and 72. So mm-hmm. this is November of 75. He got traded to the Rangers. And Wayne Cashman, among others, wasn't happy. And he basically redecorated, for lack of a better term, the Bayshore. At any rate, I go to I go to the Pacific Coliseum and outside the visitors' dressing room, and there's no, no PR people, no nothing, no other media around, nobody, just me and my cameraman. So I walk in the Boston dressing room, which I, which my job was the previous three years, was interviewing the visiting team after a game, which usually meant the winning team in those days. But So I was familiar with some of these guys, either because I'd known them from the Western Hockey League or because I covered them in the uh, in the NHL. So I walked right in the Boston dressing room and with no you know no issues at all. And then up to Bobby Orn, and he says, oh, hi, McKeith. I said, yeah. I said, I said, can I do a short thing with you? And he said, yeah. I says, well, I said, Bob, I said, I've got a new job. He says, what do you mean? He says, well, I'm not in radio anymore. I'm in television, and I didn't want to bring the camera in here without you knowing about it. So he's outside if you don't mind coming out. So we're walking out of, from his stall in the, in the dressing room, and we're halfway out toward my cameraman. And he says to me, McKeach, he says, don't, don't ask me about the trade. And I go, oh. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the number one story in North America, maybe the world for that matter, but it's certainly number yeah. one, you know, and I, I can't not ask him about it. Mm-hmm. So we get there, and um, I'm trying to respect his wishes, and I ask him some innocuous question about, quote, the big game tonight. And for the previous three years, he's been really good giving me a nice little 20 or 30-second answer. But he carries on. He answers my question, and he segues out of his own volition into talking about the trade. He went on for two minutes, and uh, he answered every, every possible contingency I could think of about the trade. So when he finished his answers, we, saw, we both looked each other in each other's eyes. I knew what he had done. He knew what he had done. I just put the microphone down and put my hand out and shook his hand and said, thank you. And uh, he understood what he was doing. And, oh, and I, you know, um, I knew what he was doing. So that was, cool. you know, you know I, and I fast forward to the mid nineties up to the about 1995 or six it was. And at the Air Canada Golf Championship, I was hosting one of the luncheons and he was one of the uh, people that played in that tournament that year. And so I, I told the story I just told you guys. And I said, he doesn't know I'm going to do this, but I said, you can't have a room with this magnitude of a person involved without you guys meeting him. So I, he was sitting in the back of the room and I called him down to the microphone and he remembered the story. And once again, he gave me that sort of wry, you dirty SOB look, you know, type of thing, but always yeah. good fun. And so, uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, cool to have those relationships after all that time. Hey, yeah. But yeah. I, I just thought of, I just thought of another one for you. Um, I had a couple of occasions. I, I told you about Jack Curran, who's the Lakers trainer in the Showtime era. 
Mm-hmm. He, he also, he was the LA Blades Western Hockey League trainer, went to the basketball team. He ended up going and leaving and working for the FBI in Washington, D.C. And when he retired, he moved to a place called Squim, Washington, just near Port Angeles. Okay. But at any rate, I, I, he must have passed away because I couldn't for the life of me track him down. But he had me work an NBA game with him one time as, a, as an assistant trainer gopher type thing. So it was the Sonics. Uh, he was, yeah, would have been with the Sonics. Uh, it's not, another brush with greatness type of thing. That's, yeah, uh, yeah. It's a little bit foggy in my memory, but uh, <laughs> who knows what would have happened. And the yeah. Phoenix Suns, by the way, came to Phoenix the year after I left. Oh, no way. So who, so who knows? And yeah. Jerry Colangelo became a friend. And um, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we're at a Phoenix baseball game one year with all the Tuesday night guys I told you about earlier. Mm-hmm. And I went down to visit him. I went down to say hello to him. Right, he's sitting right field level in his box, and uh, he saw. He remembered me, and we, he invited the whole team. The whole team came down to his box. All the guys that were on our golf trip that year. So, no there's, there's another basketball connection from you know how you as go. vague as it may be. Okay, that's a good segue then. So all this time around sport and basketball in particular, who do you think is the greatest basketball player of all time? Jordan. Yeah, I mean, my, you know, I was thinking about it earlier today too. Uh, by the way, you know, it's funny, different cultures. Mm-hmm. And uh, every NBA reference to a player is usually by his first name and every NHL reference is by his surname. Mm-hmm. You know, just, just the way that things are marketed and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I, I, you know, I, I also met Michael Jordan on a couple of occasions too. The first time was in Dallas, and um, the second time, well, the second and third time was back here. And same likewise with Kobe. And, and I, I was out of the media by the time I came back. And Michael came. Uh, at least I wasn't working night or whatever. But I remember after he finished his media scrum, Michael turned around and walked out of the room, and he, and he saw me. And he walked right over to me, and we stood and talked for two minutes. Mm. I couldn't. Uh, never mind. I couldn't believe it. All the other media guys couldn't believe it. And you there was str- actually did a, you just strut away after like yeah. he, it was all. Yeah. <laughs> I just I just thought of another story, and this is thanks to Alec McKechnie. Mm. Um, I've met a number of other NBA guys, and not the least of whom was Shaq. And it was one summer when he was rehabbing. This has got to be ten or fifteen years ago. Yep. Alec told me, "Hey, can you get some guys together? We need some guys for a scrimmage." So we went up to Centennial High School. Uh, I made a point of uh, scrimmaging, and I made sure I got on Shaq's team. What? <laughs> One of the things we never did was we never got a picture taken with him, but uh, he was very appreciative of a bunch of old farts coming on scrimmaging with him. And uh, our same group one night, I told Steve about it, and Steve Nash came out and scrimmaged with us, and I made sure I was on his team as well at the same time. So we've had <laughs> Steve Nash scrimmage with us and, uh, and Shaq, so another heading of claims to fame. So. Yeah. <laughs> A passionate question that we ask the guests, and we've had mixed reviews on this. What are your thoughts about ketchup on macaroni, specifically? What? Like, what? yeah. Oh, I, oh, I'm a yeah. Um, is fired up. Did you hear that? He defend, yeah. That no, is. I, when I saw that question, I think, well, who doesn't have it? I mean, there's, there's only certain things I, I don't want ketchup on, or whatever. But, but you, you know the name John Garrett, who the former Canuck goalie who does oh, yeah. the broadcast now with with John Shorthouse. When I was on a cruise about a year or so ago, I found this T-shirt in Florida, and it says, I put ketchup on my ketchup. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much John Garrett likes ketchup, but macaroni, by the way, that would be my death row 
uh, meal request uh, if it was made the way my mom used to make it. Wow. And uh, even at that, I'd put ketchup on it. And uh, that, a big casserole, if it was just me, it would last me a couple of days. So, wow. Uh, no, no, that's one of my go-to meals. Dominic Zerman like that answer. Corbs. There we go. Like, who doesn't like ketchup on macaroni? Have you had some no? Oh, it's, 50, it's split. It's split I mean, 50-50. You're looking at one. You're looking oh, really? directly at one. Yeah. Oh. Sorry, should we just should we just end it here? <laughs> People are very passionate about this topic, John. It's very there are, yeah, yeah. Kid, have you ever had macaroni the second day when you when you you put it in the microwave or stir fry it or whatever? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Crispy and oh, so yeah. on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Here's another one for you. Yeah. What do you put on your popcorn? Mm. Oh, I just like to melt butter. Just throw it on there. So I uh, butter and salt. Yeah, butter and salt. Now, now I, you know, you, you, some of the older guys might not want to have salt for their blood pressure and so on and so forth. But, right. but if you like, if you've got a bit of a hot palate or whatever, you could try try this one, Worcestershire yeah. sauce. You really? just sprinkle a bit on it on the bag of popcorn and just mix it in. You know, you can do it. To, you'll yeah. get you'll get the ratio after a while. And if you really, yeah. if you really got a hot palate, Tabasco sauce. Really? Yeah. So, and it doesn't soak in too badly into well, the popcorn. You like use that... your discretion. Like, just put a couple of drops of either one before okay. you start, and then and then you do it to taste. And so, you what the ratio is going to be, and how many kernels you stick your hand in the bag and mix it up. Yeah. But, uh, but Worcestershire sauce or Tabasco. Love it. I, I, Love I got it. news for you. It could be addictive. Just so you know. Well, that goes right into it. You know, not not necessarily um, popcorn, but what's the greatest bag of chips out there? So, like, I, I like I love nachos, and I can't think of it. It comes in a brown bag. of some in the kitchen right now. I can't think of the name of it. Here's one for you on a bit of a tangent. I told you to be tangents. <laughs> if I said to you in basketball, I know a guy who's a footer. Do you know what a footer is in basketball terms? Like, yeah. Seven-footer? Seven-footer? Okay, yeah, okay. There's a footer. Well, I got to think of his last name, but uh, Kirk. Yeah. Hard bite. Yes, Kirk hard bite chips. Kirk Hominick, that's our guy. Kirk Hominick, Kirk Hominick, that's the guy. I haven't seen him in a couple of years. His business is booming on hard bite chips. And, uh, yes. So there you go. So I, I, by the way, it was him that taught me, like he's seven feet. I didn't know the term footer when I met yeah. him 10 years ago or whenever. So he's the one that told me. I never knew that. Shout out to my guy, Kirk. I know you, Kaylee, and I are supposed to go out for dinner soon, but anyways, back to the show. So what you're saying is, is Hard Bites your favorite chip, and if Kirk, who is who is a follower and listener and of the show, happens to listen, then maybe Mr. McKeechee himself might have a box of Hard Bite well, chips, because it has <laughs> happened with form. He's, he's sent them cross-island to... Oh, really? up to yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. He sent yeah. a box to Big Todd McCullough. Down in Washington, yeah. yeah. Todd, so. Todd, Todd McCullough, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, one, one of the Tuesday nights on our group is named Denny Denny Moorhead, and he went. Okay. He was working for what's the name of the big lumber company. He ended up getting transferred to Winnipeg, and Denny's son and Todd McCullough were backyard hoop teammates in Winnipeg. So under the oh, heading no of way. little bits of six degrees of separation. So that's hilarious. But, but Todd, but but Kirk doesn't know where I live and I haven't been in the office in 13 months, so he'd have a tough time delivering them. So not to we'll worry. Oh, don't worry. You're a text away from me and he's one text away from us. We'll make it happen. <laughs> Kirk, um, if you had the opportunity to pick any concert, artist, group, band could be dead or alive. Doesn't matter if you're the best seat in the house. Who are you going to see? Beatles. Did you get the chance? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we, and so 
it happened, I think it might have happened twice, but I think it was the, um, we were, you, know, you must appreciate the closest Major League Baseball to Victoria in the 60s was was, was uh, San Francisco. So we would take baseball trips. We was a thousand miles. And so in 1963, three of us went down there. And uh, the first ever game I saw was August of 1963. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, we did it again in 65. And the reason I mention it is because I think it was the, I think it was 65, not 63, that the Beatles were touring North America. And I think it was San Diego through the Balboa Park Zoo. We were driving and we could actually hear them playing. No and, and, and we, and we decided not to bother. Like the concert had already started and we were on our way, I don't know, from some bar or whatever. Just, we, we just went somewhere else instead. Like we, so I had that, that opportunity, but I didn't come to Vancouver at Empire Stadium or whatever. But I, I'm saying this in retrospect. At the time, they were a bit, you know, I mean, I really enjoyed their music. I still do. Uh, Fleetwood Mac would be another one. Um, nice. yeah, yeah, yeah. and, uh, I, I enjoyed the Michael Jackson concert I saw here years ago. What? And, yeah, and uh, and also Rod Stewart at uh, at the Pacific Coliseum. So uh, those, I, I haven't been to many, but those are some that I can think of that I that I have seen. So nice. Uh, speaking I mean, of big venues, I, I I neglected to tell you that two times I got to go to England with the Whitecaps covering their training camp, and mm -hmm. remember going to an FA Cup final in the, at Wembley mm -hmm. Stadium. Oof. And uh, under the heading of not going where you're going where you're not supposed to going, but trying to be naive, I did it once at Candlestick Park, where the Expos were playing there, and I did it once at Wembley Stadium, and I ended up walking through the through the dressing room of the Wolverhampton Wolves, and unbeknown to me, there weren't showers in the dressing room. There was about ten or twelve bathtubs. They have a post game bath instead of a shower after a big match. Really? So yeah. So this was. So, um, <laughs> I only did that once. And so <laughs> that was enough. Yeah. Well, whatever. Do you read much? I'm uh yes and no. Like I get, I, I think I read like seven books in three weeks, just over whenever I get books for Christmas or buy any or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I go on binges. Okay. I won't read for months at a time, but if it's a book that comes out that I, you know, that I think I want to enjoy. I just, I won't put it down. It'll take, I'll read it in a day or two. So, so is there one that's recently stuck out to you or uh, is there one for a long time that's been a, a favorite read of yours? Oh, let me think. Um, yeah, there was, it's in the other room. I can't think of, uh, there's been several. I enjoyed, I enjoyed G.A. Triano's book. I thought he could have gone a little further in it. Uh, mm -hmm. But... Um, do you, do you like more like autobiographies or? Well, I, I, I'm into true stories and, you know, and, and, yep. and flashes back from things like that. I'm not a fiction guy. So, yeah, um, me either. This has been awesome. We always ask one, one question before we let the guests go. And it's a, kind of a reflective one. And it's, if you could do it all again, you would what? Oh, you got him. Wow. Um, from strictly a personal standpoint, from an athletic, not that I had the athletic ability, I, seeing what I've been involved with pro sports and, and, and elite amateurs and whatnot, I think I would do a better job of, of my own conditioning, especially in mm -hmm. retrospect. I had open heart surgery twice, and I think I probably could have done a better job on a proactive basis uh, of doing that. It's like I'm going through it right now, trying to you know trying to get back in shape. So from a conditioning standpoint, from a, from a professional standpoint, mm -hmm. ironically, I never, I, I'm, I'm a Sagittarian and I'm not into the Zodiac at all, but they tell me that one of my traits is 
about Sagittarians is honesty and loyalty. I never thought of any job I ever had as a stepping stone. I never thought I'd ever leave any job I ever had. And um, I, I love the sporting business. I didn't concentrate on in the university as much as I could or should have, uh, certainly not with what I have in terms of my faculties. I think, uh, I, I don't know what I would have done greater with my media career, perhaps, you know, I certainly had some opportunities. I even did some work for ESPN, but I didn't really, you know, uh, follow up on that. So I don't know. I, I guess a lot of what I've done is a real smorgasbord and to be envied by some, and I'm not trying to make light of it, uh, and I certainly enjoyed it. I, I once had a person tell me that I'm, I'm more uh, prone to want uh, security versus opportunity, and perhaps that's true. So it's sort of ironic that I... I made a couple of the changes that I have had, so mm -hmm. I don't know if I've done a very good job of answering that question. But those are just—I've never—I've never articulated any of those thoughts. If I have to myself, but never publicly. So, mm -hmm. are you glad it's your last question? <laughs> no, we don't mess around on the show. We even stumped you of all people, right? Yeah. So no, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's a—it's an interesting one because some people say, "Well, I wouldn't change a thing," and some people have things that you know they might, but I don't know. It's. Uh, it's just an interesting one to hear. Any last reflections before we get let you go? And I must say, you know, from a personal standpoint, I, I know Kev, Kev Hansen brought up getting you on, but, uh, you know, for me, you truly are that person. Like I, I loved high school basketball, had the fortune of, you know, winning the championship and whoever, every time I go back to the highlights, there you are, you know, given the details about Terry Fox versus Richmond High in 94 and kind of the background of the game. And so that's who you are for me. So it's pretty special to sit down and just hear some stories and share this time with you. Well, thank you. You, 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 have, you have a lower threshold than I anticipated, but uh, <laughs> thank you for that. But, but I guess I'd be remiss without telling you my, my one, my sole high school highlight. Please. Please do. Porky Andrews used to have a good friend, Bill Norton, who was his counterpart at Lord Bing High School. And we used to play home and home exhibition games. So we're at Lord Bing one night. Uh, what, what was the guy? Ian Hunter, I think, was the star of Lord Bing at the time. So I, I, as I said, I was I rode more pine than Weyerhaeuser ever dreamed of. So anyway, I get into the second half. It's late in the game, and Hunter's coming up the court, and I and I I cause a turnover. I steal the ball out from from mid court. I've got from basically the top of the key from the top of the key in for a layup, but I stop and take a jumper, which was never my long suit shooting or whatever, at least away or whatever, and I hit the winning two. Mm. Albeit an exhibition game, that was that was about it. In fact, they used to have our scores in the paper, and one of the partners in my sporting goods store used to say, my scoring average was comma. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. When you hit the game winner, did they go nuts at least, or was it? Well, no, there, there wasn't enough people there to go nuts, I don't think. But, uh, <laughs> I, I think... <laughs> And in terms of any regrets, I'm probably going to think of another 25 stories after we hang up. But, uh, you know, I don't know how to put you through this again. When COVID drops, Corbin and I will come by with a case of beer and we'll come by that basketball night and we'll uh, Absolutely. we'll get some real stories. Oh, Part, part yeah. two. Yeah, no, oh, feel free. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, we might be sold. A case of beer might not do it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it, might, it, it might be too much. We might be, you know, we, we, we could be on warm milk and cookies by that time. That sounds time. like a good time to me. I don't know. Oh, you guys. Yeah, no, absolutely. So. Well, we do appreciate your time. This was awesome, you know, and like I said, um, you're being humble about it, but uh, the name alone speaks for itself, and um, I know everyone's going to enjoy this episode because we do have lots of people from the island, and, and you know, you're in terms of who you are for the sporting world in the lower mainland as well. So 
Thank you so much for being with us. All right. Appreciate it, Aaron. Thanks very much. Thanks, Corbin. Thank you. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Please give us a rating on iTunes. Share an episode with some of your friends. Drop us a DM. We love interacting with everyone that DMs with us. So, Thank you to our sponsors, and we'll see you on the next episode.